Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. When he finally saw the walkers coming, he had wet his pants. One boy had been screaming. That was his most vivid memory. Every time he put his foot down, he had screamed, I can't! I can't! I can't! I can't! But he went on walking. They all did. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, your host for this episode, and I'm continuing my own long walk through all Stephen King's published works with this review of his novel, The Long Walk, originally published in July of 1979. The Long Walk was the second book released under King's pseudonym, Richard Bachman, the first being the now-out-of-print novel Rage, which I've reviewed previously on Books and Nachos. In that review, I went into the history of why and how King created the Richard Bachman nom de plume, so I won't recount that here. Suffice it to say that at this point in King's career, his publisher Doubleday felt releasing more than one book per author per year would saturate the market. They feared the books would compete against themselves and cannibalize the author's overall sales. This frustrated King, who'd always been a voracious writer. More, he had a backlog of works written before Carrie were published, books previously rejected by publishing houses that King felt were worthy of mass release. As such, King made a deal with Doubleday that he could shop these novels to other publishers so long as he used a pen name on the books. King settled on New American Library, the publisher who had purchased the rights to all of King's paperbacks at this point. New American Library had been good to King. The paperback rights for Carrie had sold for $400,000 compared to the $2,500 King was given as an advance for the hardback. So the author happily signed with the New American Library to publish these Bachman books. As New American Library was a paperback publisher only, these original Richard Bachman novels' first printing was paperback, and the first print editions of The Long Walk, with a cover price of $1.95, are listed on eBay for upwards of $200 and even $300. Though bargains can be had, one in decent condition did just sell for $60. But, as I did with Rage, I'll be looking at The Long Walk not as Richard Bachman's second book, but as Stephen King's sixth published novel. Yet this book, coming out after King's The Stand and only one month before The Dead Zone, cannot really be judged by its publication order. The Long Walk is actually King's first finished novel, written while a college student at the University of Maine in 1966 or 1967. Now, The Long Walk is going to have to compete with Rage, for which is actually King's first novel. Rage was begun while King was a high school student, but he abandoned that until 1971, when King finished the story with the hopes of publication. The Long Walk started later, but finished first. As such, King has called this his first novel in his afterword to his short story collection, Full Dark No Stars. And King was a very different man and author in the mid-60s than he was in the late 70s. As King himself said at the start of the Bachman book collection, quote, The books in this omnibus were written by a young man who was angry, energetic, and deeply infatuated with the Ottencraft of writing. End quote. And an angry young man writes stories about angry young men, and The Long Walk is really the story of 100 angry men. This Richard Bachman novel takes place in a dystopian alternate United States of America. 
King keeps the specifics of this mirror universe vague, but there's a random mention of a 1953 U.S. military attack upon a German nuclear base in Santiago, Chile. Obviously, this universe diverged from our own long before that, perhaps with a different outcome of World War II. In the long walk, though, King isn't interested in world-building and giving us those specifics. Instead, he's interested in mood-building and telling us that the America in which this story takes place is a police state. Groups called the Federal Squads patrol the country, and speaking out against the government and its ideals result in getting squatted, where the agents come to your house and take you away, never to be seen again. Whether those people are imprisoned, deported, or killed is irrelevant to those left behind. The squads are to be feared and the rules to be obeyed. People believe they are free, but any illegal activity is met with extreme violence, if not from the squads, then from the local police forces. Knowing that King wrote this in the 1960s, this seems like a very typical view. Coming out of the 1950s, full of McCarthy-era communist witch hunts, and into the 1960s, where police were arresting students speaking out at campus rallies, this view of America becoming a police state was a popular one. King uses this fiction to create a world in which that's not some possible future, but the all-too-real present through an alternate history. And in this America, the national pastime isn't baseball, it's a type of game show called The Long Walk. The origin of The Walk and who runs it is vague, but it's monitored by the military, run by someone known only as The Major. Each year, thousands of teenage boys apply to be accepted in the game. Many don't pass the psychological or physical tests required, but of those that do, only 100 are selected to participate and 100 alternates in case one of the primaries drops out early. Then it begins every year on May 1st. The rules are very simple. The boys gather in northern Maine near the Canadian border, and they begin walking south. They walk a prescribed route roped off by the military, and the contestants must maintain a speed of 4 miles per hour or higher. If the walker gets a cramp or needs to tie his shoe or even use the bathroom, they can't drop below the 4 miles per hour minimum speed. They're given limited rations once per day and as much water as they want, but there are no breaks, there is no rest, there is only the constant movement, and if any of the boys falls below the speed, they are issued a warning. For every 30 seconds they stay below the speed, another warning is given. Contestants can get up to three warnings, and if they can keep their speed up for an hour, then a warning will be removed. But if they get the three warnings and drop below the speed again, they're shot dead by the military men who observe from a nearby truck. This is euphemistically referred to as getting a ticket. The winner of the long walk is quite literally the last man standing, and they're given the prize. That prize is very vague in description, but from the pros, I take it to mean anything you want, whenever you want it, for the rest of your life. King's novel tells of one of these walks and the boys who took part. Now, I first read The Long Walk back in the mid-1980s. King's use of the Bachman name was not only known, but all four of the paperback novels written under that name had been collected and reprinted as a collection called The Bachman Books, with King's name in a huge font on the cover. I read all four in that red-covered paperback tome, but coming back to reread the story now, I had no memory of its plot, and I believe that's because it is so similar to King's more famous Bachman book, The Running Man. Both tell tales of a dystopian America, which have game shows where the loser forfeits not just their winnings, but their lives. Over the past 30 years, the two stories had blended in my memory, but the similarities are pretty obvious down to their titles. But The Long Walk came first, both in terms of writing and publication, and as such, King teases the telling of this plot. 
the book begins with the gathering of the boys, including our main character, 16-year-old Raymond Garrity. We don't know why they're gathering, but we're told that it's too late to back out and severe consequences are implied. But King wants to draw out the knowledge of what the walk and its consequences really are. In this way, King seems to be trying to recreate the mystery and the madness that surrounds Shirley Jackson's famous short story, The Lottery. The parallels are obvious. In both cases, a deadly ritual is engaged. The majority of the people endorse the ritual, either due to their belief in it or due to fear of reprisal for dissent. More, in both stories, the origin of the human sacrifices are vague. These are things that have just seemingly always existed for our characters. In The Long Walk, King even writes, quote, The walk was one of those things that existed on Apocrypha, talismans, legends, end quote. As the kids on this walk wouldn't be interested in the first time the walk occurred or how it came to be, we readers never discover that either. Like Jackson's lottery, the walk simply is. And it's not until fatal consequences are faced that anyone sees the folly. And it's a question that King is exploring, not answering. Driving home that game show feel, King starts most of the chapters with quotes from famous TV quiz programs. And one of those quotes feels specifically apt for this novel when Art Fleming reminds contestants that all answers must come in the form of a question. That's King's modus operandi here, to tease riddles, not to give all the answers. Yet King tries to keep the mystery up, dripping out the details to the reader. In a rare case of very clumsy writing, King has the characters telling each other the rules. Now obviously, everyone who signed up for the walk would already know the rules, but the reader doesn't, so King creates false situations for the rules to be spoken in dialogue. Now, the author tries to cover it up with the walkers saying things like, but you know that, but it's really just unfortunate dialogue to catch us, the reader, up on what's going on. But once we know the rules, go south, stay above four miles per hour, King continues to draw out two more mysteries. The first is the prize. Walkers talk about the prize with a special type of reverence. King even capitalizes the word prize. It's not an object, but a proper noun. We're told that the winner of the walk will get a large, though unspecified, sum of money, but that real gift is the prize. Early on, it seems the walkers would get one thing for the prize, any wish granted. Later, it's called out as a lifetime of wishes come true, granted by the government. Later still, some of the walkers claim the prize is a lie, that the winner of the walk is shot as dead as all the losers. Having finished the book, I can say any and all of it's possible. King's point here isn't specifics, but the oppressive nature of this world and the bleak expedition these 100 boys have undertaken. But even more than the prize, King drips details about what it means to lose. The contestants talk about the fourth warning, the time when a contestant is given his ticket. Now, to me, this was painfully obvious, perhaps because I know whose book I'm reading, perhaps because I remember The Running Man so clearly, or perhaps because this book isn't very good with secrets. Yet, this late teenage author King thought he was being pretty clever with the term ticket. It's just dropped time and again so that any reader paying attention would realize that a ticket isn't a slip of paper with a fine. On page 25, one contestant says, quote, Just don't stumble, buddy. They don't warn you again, they just... End quote. King ends that with an ellipse, begging the question, They just what? Again, that answer should be obvious. If the winner gets the ultimate prize, anything they want, everything they want, then the loser should have the ultimate loss, their life. It's just symmetrical, right? 
but this book draws that out. The obviousness of the situation seemed painful to me, so that my memory is that it took a huge portion of the book to get to the killing. In fact, it's only at the end of chapter 2 that the first ticket is given. But King wanted this passage of the first ticket issued to be a shock to the reader. Quote, Everything went slowly then, as if to match the way Curly was walking. The soldiers on the back of the slow-moving half-track raised their guns. The crowd gasped, as if they hadn't known this was the way it was, and the walkers gasped, as if they hadn't known, and Garrity gasped with them. But of course he had known. Of course they had all known. It was very simple. Curly was going to get his ticket. The safeties clicked off. Boys scattered from around Curly like quail. He was suddenly alone on the unwashed road. It isn't fair, he screamed. It just isn't fair. The walking boys entered a leafy glade of shadow, some of them looking back, some of them looking straight ahead, afraid to see. Garrity was looking. He had to look. The scatter of waving spectators had fallen silent, as if someone had simply clicked them all off. It isn't... Four carbines fired. They were very loud. The noise traveled away like bowling balls, struck the hills, and rolled back. Curly's angular, pimply head disappeared in a hammer smash of blood and brains and flying skull fragments. The rest of him fell forward on the white line like a sack of mail. End quote. Again, the callbacks to Jackson's lottery are obvious, as both Curly in that passage and Jackson's main character decry the unfairness of the situation as they're publicly executed. With this bloody, violent fate awaiting 99% of the walkers, the true question really emerges. What would compel anyone to enter this event? For all its social commentary, for all its plot teasing, the question of why is the true heart of the long walk. For some of the boys, it's the thought of the prize that drives them to enter the contest. For others, it's a form of suicide by proxy. Others still enter for the thought of the fame that comes from being one of the walkers. Yet for our character, Raymond Garrity, it's none of those things. When asked why he entered the long walk, he says he isn't really sure and there's no real epiphany for him in this novel. Yet, once in for the long walk, the only way out is with a bullet in your head. And so this story begins as all the long walkers are dropped off, mostly by their parents, at the starting line. Then the story progresses the only way it can. The walkers walk. And they talk. And one by one, they die. With that basic plot, I have to give King some credit. This is a story about teenagers in a dystopian future playing a life-or-death game. King was ahead of his time, man. If this had been published in 1999 or 2009 instead of 1979, I'm pretty sure this book would have sold much better. Honestly, King and Bachman could have competed with each other for places on the bestseller list. After all, isn't this the same basic plot and setup as stories like The Hunger Games and The Maze Runner? Teen adventure fiction is the rage today, but here was King pioneering it from his dorm room in the 1960s. When I picked it up for this review, I never expected that to be the basis of The Long Walk, but the first few chapters of the story just astounded me that I was reading a book that is so similar to today's young adult bestsellers. So why didn't this novel blaze up the charts and pioneer this YA trend? Or if 70s teens weren't ready for this type of story, why hadn't The Long Walk become a rediscovered gem that kids read when they finish their newer books? I think there's several important reasons. First, King's story features an all-male cast. While mothers and girlfriends pop up in dialogue or in brief moments as the contestants walk away or past, this is 100 dudes out for a walk. I couldn't help but think about the research I did for Carrie and how King said he was inspired to write that female-led story because a friend challenged him, saying King could only write macho stories for men. 
If that friend had read The Long Walk, I completely understand the sentiment. As such, this book's cast may be a barrier for many readers. Not just for girls who like to see females in fiction, but for anyone who would want to see a more interpersonal story than a male competition. Second, and even more important though, King's storytelling here is fairly unsophisticated. By that I don't mean his prose, but the sheer plotting. Some things just never add up. Think about this logically. You're a teenage boy, and you're voluntarily signing up to go on a long walk. It's a random lottery system, but unlike The Hunger Games, this is voluntary. Boys want to go on this walk. Thousands of boys sign up, 200 get selected, 100 go on the walk, and at least 99 won't return home. If you're deciding to go into a life-or-death match of stamina, I think it's only logical to train. The entire pool for selection should be track and field runners. In this reality, little children are taken to see the long walkers, the way real-world families go to watch a parade or a fireworks show. There's no secrecy about this event and the deadly consequences for failure. Tickets aren't given in private when there's no crowds watching. Indeed, the audiences here seem downright disappointed if the walkers pass their town and no tickets are given. The people who come to see the walker are a bloodthirsty crowd, akin to Romans watching the Christians being fed to lions. I would think every boy, since learning to walk, would be learning to long walk and know they can come into this competition with what they'd at least consider a better-than-average chance of winning. Yet, these walkers are everyday guys. They're all fit, but their training's been intellectual. They read up on the best shoes to wear and the best way to ration what food you're given. They looked at the strategies to take, such as try to walk as close to 4 miles per hour as possible, but it seems few of them have ever even tried to see if they could walk for 2 or 3 days non-stop. They entered into this blindly. Now, I challenge you listeners, and I know from emails, some of you listen while at the gym. Head on over to a treadmill and set that to a zero incline at 4 miles per hour. At times, increase the incline to a 4 or 5% grade, as these walkers do face some steep hills along the way. Now see how you feel after walking that for one hour, and then keep it going for three hours. If you want the full long walk experience, find a 24-hour gym and try it for over 100 hours. Some of these survivors make it into Massachusetts before the book ends, and that's a hell of a pace and a hell of a distance. I did, just to feel what these walkers felt. Now, I have somewhat shorter legs, but to me, 4 miles per hour is right on the verge of a jog. I looked it up, the average human walking speed is 3.1 miles per hour. There's even a walking rule of thumb called Naismith's Rule that helps gauge walking time, and it says that you average 1 hour for every 3.1 miles, and then add another hour for every 2,000 feet of ascent. The average jogging speed is about 4.5 to 5 miles an hour, so these walkers are at the very least, power walking. Plus, they're doing it while carrying canteens of water, belts full of food, and more. And they never stop for the bathroom. If, if they have to go, they go while they walk. And that, I imagine, would lead to some serious chafing. So, looking at this, and trying to bring a real-world logic to the game, I honestly think anyone entering this competition without years of training and some specialty-made high-end shoes would be out day one. I imagine if told today, that would be the villain in the story, right? Perhaps an egotistical rich kid who had Proclaimers brand shoes that could walk a thousand miles, and whose parents hired him a trainer for a decade to prepare. He'd be the odds-on favorite, coming to the walk like an alemnic gymnast goes to the games. Then our hero could still be the everyman Raymond Garrity, who didn't have the benefit of such a background. 
We'd want to see a humble avatar of ourselves overcome the rich, snooty favorite. But in King's story, that doesn't happen. None of the contestants really trained. They all just came in with the naivete and the feeling of immortality that really is the domain of an American adolescent male. Beyond that, I would think that a hundred strangers entering in a contest that is literally survival of the fittest would be fairly cutthroat. It's pure logic that each person who falls in his shot is one less competitor. In a fight for your life with winner-take-all stakes, friendship isn't what would be on my mind. I'd be thinking about my own survival. Yet, while that attitude may seem more realistic, this book wouldn't be very interesting if it were just people out to trip or screw over their competitors. In fact, the one person on the walk who exhibits this, in my mind, rational line of thought, is a minor character named Gary Barkovich, the closest thing the book has to a villain. Admittedly, Barkovich isn't exactly silent about his goals. He not only realizes the only way to win is for the others to die, but he promises to, quote, dance on their graves, unquote. His antagonism even gets one of the walkers to take a swing at Barkovich, but it's a miss and the attacker falls, getting his ticket. For the rest of the walk, Garrity and the others consider Barkovich a murderer, having goaded the boy into an act that caused his own death. But Barkovich is an exception in this group, not the rule. The primary group of characters become friends with Garrity, some even helping each other and literally saving each other's lives. It's really counterintuitive to have these boys on a death march become friends. It's silly, in fact, for them to even waste their precious breath by talking. The air they take in should be devoted to providing oxygen to their starved and strained muscles, not to shooting the breeze. It's a flaw in King's premise that, like having the walkers tell each other rules they already know, the author tries to explain away. As the walk begins, one of the contestants named Baker says he realizes they shouldn't help each other out, but, quote, we're all in this together and we might as well keep each other amused, end quote. Yet later in the book, they do help each other. They give tips to keep going, with our main character, Garrity, and others literally helping each other up along the way. It makes no sense, and that's because, despite framing this story as a huge game show, even using quotes from real-life game shows and hosts at the start of each chapter, that's not the story King really wants to tell. While I call these points out as a flaw in King's storytelling, I'm willing to bet he'd argue with me, because I'm trying to apply a sense of reality and logic to the story. I want the long walk to be more sophisticated, like the Hunger Games. But King didn't really see the long walk as a game. He saw it as war. Indeed, it's blazingly obvious in King's prose that these boys in the walk are supposed to represent young American soldiers. I said earlier that the heart of King's tale is the question of why, but the subject of that question isn't really the walk, but the war. Rather, the Vietnam War. If you listen to my earlier Book Sinatra's episodes going through King's stories, specifically several of the short stories he wrote in college and later collected in Night Shift, then you know King was a political activist in the 60s. The author's always been a man with his eyes focused very much on the politics of the time. And that isn't unusual, especially for college students in the mid to late 60s during the Vietnam War. By January of 1966, over 300,000 men had been sent to the war, and it was about an even split between the number enlisted and the number drafted. For men 18 and above, the draft was a constant presence that could come at any time to them or their classmates or friends. To read The Long Walk is really to see a story that comes out of the political atmosphere of the 1960s. Firstly, I mentioned four miles per hour is quite a fast pace, but King didn't pick this speed arbitrarily, nor likely through his own speed trials walking. 
King got this idea from President John F. Kennedy. While the state of American fitness and obesity is all the news right now, with First Lady Michelle Obama promoting physical fitness in the media, it's not actually a new push. I remember in the 80s, this was topical with President Reagan teaming with Arnold Schwarzenegger to push physical fitness. But, and you may find this shocking, we've actually passed the 50th anniversary of presidential administrations trying to shine a spotlight on physical fitness, and the first was JFK. The former president even wrote an article for Sports Illustrated about the dangers of automation and increased leisure time leading to poor health. In 62, Kennedy also challenged the Marines to prove their fitness by completing a 50-mile walk in 20 hours. JFK was so popular, this idea became called the Kennedy March, and Americans across the country took it as a personal challenge from the president himself. And a group called the Amos Alonzo Stag Foundation jumped on this, and for the first 30 days, they gave bronze medals to anyone who could do the 50 miles in just 12 hours, which ends up having an average speed of just over 4 miles per hour. Now keep in mind, this was taking place in 1962 and 63, just three or four years before King wrote The Long Walk. While the Kennedy March is now relegated to the obscure pages of Wikipedia, it was a topical, current event to the author. It was something that went through his mind often during these years. In one interview, he mentioned how he didn't have a car, so he'd have to hitchhike or walk wherever he was going. He did say, though, that he never made it the 50 miles Kennedy had specified. King's furthest distance was 20 miles. Yet, I stand by my assertion that the speed is too fast for untrained teenagers. Even Kennedy's President's Council cautioned Americans that they don't recommend people jump to a 50-mile hike, but rather a moderate, gradual program of walking and exercise. This seems more reasonable for all these untrained, fit but not athletic competitors in the long walk. But if the fast 50-mile walk was political news from the early 60s, by the mid to late 60s, the news would have changed focus, of course, to the war in Vietnam. To King, these 100 boys aren't on a march for a financial prize, but deployed troops fighting for their very survival. You don't have to even read interviews with King to figure this out. You wouldn't even have to know King was the author. That this is an allegory for war, and specifically Vietnam, is practically screaming from almost every page. And it's that adherence to a political statement that causes several of the flaws I've noted with King's storytelling. For example, I cited it as an issue there's no women on the walk. Well, women were not in active combat in the 60s and 70s, and the famous images of the coffins being sent home from Vietnam all carried a dead man. That the boys all signed up for the walk, knowing it may mean certain death, also ties to Vietnam. During that war, the media reported about the heavy U.S. casualties to the point that newspeople were sometimes blamed for some of the opposition to the war. Yet, in spite of the knowledge, about half the troops sent to fight in Vietnam were enlisted. Given that these walkers all applied for the long walk, even with the long odds, King's making a statement about those who would voluntarily sign on for a tour of duty in Vietnam. So as a game show, it's a ridiculous conceit that these walkers didn't train. But as a metaphor for soldiers in Vietnam, it's perfectly apt. Just like the walkers, those who enlisted in the army had to pass physical and mental tests, so they were fit and able to do their duty, but they were not all prime specimens with a lifetime of regimented training. So what this story then becomes is a bunch of young men on a march. And it does come through that this is symbolic of any troop in Vietnam trying to make their way through the jungles where death could await them at any step. And that's the real reason the boys band together. 
because that's King's view of young men having to serve in Vietnam. They're thrown together from different backgrounds and histories. Their ages vary somewhat, but they're all young men, strangers to each other. In the midst of life-or-death stakes, they march on, sharing life stories and connecting with each other. And your best friend on the walk yesterday could be today's newest casualty. The symbolism extends to the fact that this walk is run by the military and overseen by a man called the Major. When the walk starts, the Major is seen as a celebrity, an infallible figure who the boys all revere. Yet as the walk goes on and the truth of it sinks in, as contestants see their fellow walkers fall and shot to death, they start to demonize the Major and hate his goons who ride alongside the walkers, comfortable in their truck, issuing warnings and giving fatal tickets. I can see that as a thought for any man who willingly enlists in the war and enters boot camp, trained by a drill sergeant and forced to endure weeks of strenuous training and pushing their body to the limits. Earlier, I asked the question of why any man in his right mind would, untrained, enter a contest where 99% of the contestants die. I think this entire book is King's method of asking that very question of men who enlist in the army. If you see all the dead bodies coming home in coffins, why would you want to enlist? And I do think that specifically enlisted men, not drafted soldiers, are King's comparative here. Again, I think the walk would have made more sense as fiction if the walkers were drafted, or perhaps if there were a combination of volunteers and drafted walkers it would work best. But King's story here is on a mental journey that's traveled during a physical one. The boys all signed up eager and excited to be a part of it. Women swooned at the sight of the walkers, similar, I would guess, to how many women would react to a man in uniform, especially during World War II and such. But as the reality of the walk set in and the certainty of death loomed, the walkers began to realize the futility and the inevitability of it all. It gets to the point where death becomes so commonplace to the walkers as to cease affecting them. King writes, quote, Garrity watched apathetically and thought, even the horror wears thin. There's a surfeit, even of death. End quote. Again, drawing that comparative to soldiers who've seen too much battle. I applaud Young King's efforts to bring such a social message to the sci-fi book, but it just seems that the difference between a game show and war break down and ruin the effect. I've never fought in combat, but I would think you'd want to have your squads back. The greater your number, the greater everyone's chance at survival. The group should work as a unit, because the safety of one is the safety of all. And when an ambush comes or you're in battle... Hopefully it's not every man for himself. Every man would want to see the entire squad return home safely. Each death would weaken the group as a whole. Were King to make this long walk a team-based activity, this parallel would be more strong. And in fact, that the walkers band together to help each other survive would make sense. But in this game, as described, only the last man standing can go home. And that makes this type of camaraderie simply nonsensical. It's a shame, too, for the game show conceit is really flawed here. In the war, there's no prize for soldiers other than survival. And truly, as the walk goes on, the walkers do realize that's the prize they want most. More than money, more than their wishes. But no man enlists thinking the world's going to be paved for a soldier. And specifically with Vietnam, there's a game show comparison that King really could have drawn on, and he may have, and that's the lottery. During the Vietnam War, the draft lottery was a televised event. People were glued to their TV sets watching ping pong balls with numbers be drawn. And hell, I remember being a young kid watching the Illinois State Lottery drawing on WGN, at rapt attention wondering if the balls would pop so I'd win my millions. But I could only imagine the horror of watching a very similar event, and if my number came up, I was sent to fight in Vietnam. 
And yet that's exactly what happened, right down to the ping pong balls. It's a perversion of the game show concept that happened not in a fictional America, but in the real world. Anyone watching that had to be able to draw parallels between how most game shows offered trips in cars and new kitchen ovens, and this one offered a good chance of death. As such, it seemed an obvious parallel in where King may have gotten his game show concept for the long walk. King made the walk its own game show, but there was the lottery involved that picked the walkers out of all eligible volunteers. But perhaps in this regard, King was again ahead of his time. The televised lottery didn't begin until 1969, two or three years after he finished The Long Walk. And that is one key to this novel, as published in 1979. How much of this book is the original 1967 manuscript? How much of this was revised when King shopped it around to publishers in 71? And then when he pulled it out again for printing under the Bachman name, did he give it another rewrite? As King published these books in anonymity, there's no interviews from the time and little discussion from the author that I can find which would give that insight. So though we'll never know how much this manuscript changed from its 1967 edition until its 1979 publication, the game show idea seems so ingrained in the story that it seems unlikely it was added in later revisions. No, it seems King just took to heart a quote by gong show host Chuck Barris. Quote, the ultimate game show would be one where the losing contestant was killed, end quote. King even uses that quote at the head of chapter four of the novel. The end result, though, is a mishmash of ideas. In one novel, King is trying to discuss soldiers at war, fascism in America, the material nature of Americans as evidenced through game shows, and still have a character drama on top of it all. And the result is honestly a thematic mess. King's a baseball fan, so hopefully he'll appreciate this metaphor, if not its sentiment, when I say that this was his first time at bat and he swung for the fences and ended up striking out. More, the story gets really repetitive. I mentioned that in Chapter 2, the first ticket is given. From that point, we have 330 more pages and 98 more walkers to kill. As you can imagine, that's exactly how the book goes down. One boy tries to make a run for it, realizing he can't win, and he's gunned down. One walker gets a foot cramp and can't keep up, and he's killed. A boy named Rank takes a swing at Barkovich and falls. The troops shoot him dead. By page 116, just over a third of the way into the novel, our main man Garrity is no longer phased by death, and neither am I. All that's left is for the walkers to die. That's the game, and it grows old quickly. King knew this going in, and he defended the novel's repetitive nature. In the book Stephen King, A Biography, I read that Carol F. Terrell, a member of the University of Maine English Department, raised this criticism to King. The author's response, and I'm quoting Terrell, quote, that the sameness and routine were deliberate and part of the point. On the road of life, few people become distinguished from the mass. They just stagger along until they conk out, end quote. In this, King was correct. His writing helps drive home his symbolism, yet it doesn't make for an enjoyable read. In On Writing, King would discuss the dangers of writing to theme and state that he tried to write to story and the themes would bear themselves out. Yet here, young King didn't have that wisdom, and so he wrote a repetitive novel about a young man on a long slog, and at times I felt the plot itself was the slog. The author killed this story by trying to hew too strongly to his theme. In that regard, this novel's an object lesson that the author's instructions in on writing were on point. So we have a book with an obvious statement on Vietnam soldiers, written by someone on a college campus who's never been to war, 
It has a repetitive and obvious plot and refuses to embellish the more interesting details of this dystopian alternate reality in which it takes place. That leaves it up to the characters, not the plot, to carry this novel. And I will admit, it's probably pretty telling that we're far into this review and I've mentioned only a few characters so far. I reviewed this story as plot first, character second, because I think that's how King wrote it. The author had his theme, his idea of people on a walk. He envisioned the world in which that type of game show could take place, and the rules for the game, and then he set to writing. It seems to me that it was a bit of an afterthought that there'd have to be people, 100 boys on this walk, and King would need to make them interesting. Now, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a bad order in which to write. I'm guessing he did the stand in Salem's lot much the same way. He built a world, a scenario, and then put people in it. But by the time he wrote both of those novels, King really knew how to write people that would fit the situation. Carrie is a character study about a repressed girl who gains psychic powers, but it's the girl, not the powers, that buoy that novel. In Salem's Lot, King picked Ben Mears, an author overcoming a great loss, and put him in a town surrounded by vampires. Of course, the best of these was The Shining, where King put a psychic boy and his alcoholic father to have their interpersonal issues exacerbated by ghosts, allowing the horror to mirror the character's traits. But for the long walk, King really gives us only one character to care about. This entire novel is told from the perspective of 16-year-old Raymond Davis Garrity, described as, quote, a tall, well-built boy wearing a faded army fatigue jacket, end quote. He's given Walker number 47. Now, The Long Walk isn't written in first person, as the previous Bachman book Rage was, but The Long Walk is in such a strong third-person perspective, it may as well have been. We're in Garrity's head the whole time. King just chooses to say he instead of I. The book starts with Garrity being dropped off for the walk by his mother. At the starting line, the 16-year-old greets a few of his fellow walkers, and then they're off. For the entire novel, we follow Garrity, and only Garrity, on this walk. If Garrity is falling asleep, then our focus is in his head. If Garrity's talking to another boy, then we're hearing that conversation only. So you have to really hope you like this Raymond Garrity, because you're going to walk for 370 pages in his shoes. And boy, do I wish I like Ray more. In many ways, Garrity reminds me a lot of Charlie Decker, the main character of the first Bachman book Rage. Like Decker, Garrity is a disaffected teenager trying to figure out their place in a violent society. Also like Decker, we're dealing with a bit of an outcast who will likely die shot dead on the book's last page. It's easy to see Ray Garrity as a dead man long walking. But Decker carried his story. He was a strong force in that novel. When he walked into the classroom with his gun brandished, all eyes were on him, both in the book and for those reading it. Decker may have been insane, but at least he was an active character. Garrity is the sheer definition of passive. Repeatedly, he's asked why he entered the long walk, and his answer is, I don't know. I can't tell you how much I turned page after page, hoping that our protagonist would have an epiphany, a moment of insight into what drove him into this suicide march. It never comes. He ends this race as ignorant about his own motivations as he began. During the book, Garrity does say that the death didn't seem real to him. King writes, quote, But the guns didn't produce little red flags with BANG written on them. It wasn't baseball or giant step. It was all real. End quote. But even with that, it wasn't greed that motivated Garrity, nor a girl, nor a desire to die. Why did he do it? 
Garrity may be telling the truth when he says he doesn't know, but much of the novel is Garrity reflecting back on his life before the walk and the events that happened. Garrity seemed like a fairly popular kid. He had a girlfriend, and though he's frustrated they haven't yet gone all the way, he was still a virgin, she had offered that if Garrity dropped out of the walk. He seems to love her, though Garrity does take the first opportunity to kiss and grope a walker groupie on the side of the road. And late into the walk, Garrity even has a spontaneous orgasm after watching a fellow walker make out with another groupie. But despite all that, there's no real sense of sexual dysfunction or confusion in Garrity. He also has a mother who unsuccessfully tries to talk him out of the walk. Though it's implied she was so taken with the thought of the prize, she didn't try too hard. The mother is fairly unexplored, though we do know she's sad her son is on the walk, but also that she was a hard mother. Garrity recounts a time when he was five years old playing doctor with another boy, and his mother threatened him, asking how he'd like it if she made him go walk down the street with no clothes on. Yet Garrity embodies a few King character tropes that we'll see in other of the author's works. Like King himself and many of his characters, Garrity's father is gone. Though King's left by choice, and Garrity's was taken by the squads after speaking out too much against the walk and the major. Garrity's father had even taken his 10-year-old son to see a walk as a cautionary tale. Garrity also had a brother who died of pneumonia when he was six. Characters with deceased siblings, specifically boys with dead brothers, is something we see repeated in King's stories like It and The Body. Also mirroring one of King's early life experiences, Garrity also had a friend die. I mentioned in my review of King's Night Shift short story, Sometimes They Come Back, that when King was four, he reportedly witnessed a friend killed by a train, and that seems to have inspired in part that short story and the later work The Body. A similar event takes place here when Garrity recounts his friend George Freaky Dalasio, who was hit by a car and killed. It's a story Garrity remembers often during the walk, as the death surrounding him reminds him of his earliest memory of a funeral. All these disjointed memories and stories, and several more, come from Garrity during the walk. Yet, even more than Charlie Decker before him, I'm left wondering why I should really care. These scenes from a life tell me about Garrity, but nothing in a very endearing way. He is an everyman, with some past successes and failures. And yes, you can try to analyze those stories and suss out Gary's motivation for the walk. Maybe the mother's threat of walking naked was a psychosexual Freudian reason for Garrity to walk. Perhaps Gary entered the walk as an act of teenage rebellion against the father who wasn't there. It's possible, but Garrity also says he never missed having the man around. Maybe Garrity's walking to death because of Freaky? It's left to the reader's interpretation. King won't give those answers. More, I don't think King cares. It's another obvious bit of King's Vietnam theme that Garrity is just a stand-in for a soldier who impulsively listed in the army, and then it was too late to back out. While out with the other troops walking through the jungle, he remembered some things from back home, including idealizing his girl who didn't want him to go. He also tells random anecdotes that appear applicable to his situation, as war buddies will trade bits of their history while deployed. But Garrity is such a weak-willed character, I can't root for him. It isn't even until 90% into the book that Garrity wants to win. He specifically notes the moment he finally realizes he wants to survive. And in that, perhaps we see a bit of character evolution, but there's no real reason for Garrity's sudden determination to not go gently into that good night. Truthfully, the only reason to root for Garrity is because he is our main character. The book establishes him as the protagonist. I'm reading the book, 
Therefore, the transitive property of storytelling means I want Garrity to win. Presumed empathy for a lead character is a writing flaw in a lot of fiction, and it's in full effect here. Like many King characters, Garrity is from Maine, so much of the walk is through his home state. As the local walker, people root for him, holding up Go Garrity signs and the like. They root for him, so I will too, right? Well, I sort of do, because King doesn't give me too many other options. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of other characters. There's George Fielder, Bruce Pastor, a young father named Abraham, Marty Wyman, Colly Parker, Charlie Field, so many more. King doesn't name all 100 people out for the walk, but honestly, there's too many characters. For a first-time novel, King has stuffed this book to the gills with characters, but they're all so ill-defined that it's hard to keep them straight. In a movie, we'd have it easier. That guy's the blonde one, or he's the pasty kid. Facial recognition would kick in and the names would be less important. But King does a really poor job of differentiating his characters on the page, and he provides names to far too many. In Chapter 1 alone, Garrity meets Peter McVreeze, Hank Olsen, Art Baker, Gary Barkovich, and a mysterious kid named Stebbins. Of those five people, two will become major supporting characters, one is a C-list character, and two don't really matter at all. Yet the names keep coming, chapter after chapter, and it wasn't until halfway through the novel that I was able to keep names straight without using the Kindle search feature to go, now who is this again? With the book over, I look back, and there's only really three supporting characters that matter. One friend and two enemies. Of the enemies, I already mentioned one of them, Gary Barkovich. This is the man who's the epitome of a villain in the story, coming in with his Machiavellian attitude. At one point, McVries says this walk isn't survival of the physically fittest, that it's the mind that wins the walk. If that's the case, Barkovich seems to have that game won as he starts off by psyching out all the other players, goading them into mistakes. Out of 100 walkers, only Barkovich sees this as him against the other players. The remaining 99 walkers take this entire contest as man versus foot, not man versus man. Due to this, Barkovich becomes the one Garrity and his friends want to beat most. After all, no one wants the pompous asshole to win. The other enemy is the more interesting and mysterious one. We're never told his first name, but his last name is Stebbins. The boy keeps to himself and is usually one of the last boys in the race, always staying just above 4 miles per hour. For no apparent reason other than it suits the book, Garrity is immediately fascinated with and hates Stebbins with his strange purple pants and jelly sandwiches. Now Stebbins is a more quiet villain than Barkovich. The latter boy makes enemies, while the former just doesn't make any friends. But other than Barkovich, it seems only Stebbins realizes the way to win is having your fellow walkers die. Stebbins is a bit of a sphinx in this story. He has knowledge about the walk and can provide survival tips. But is he actually giving good advice or setting his competition up for a literal fall? When Stebbins speaks, King wants you to pay attention. But in the end, he's just another boy fighting for his life. He reveals some things about his past at the end, but who knows if Stebbins ever tells the truth. More than Barkovich, Stebbins is the nemesis, and one King seems to have more fun writing. In prose, the author compares this walker to the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland, and you can see the fun the author has with that conceit. Now in regards to friends, Garrity has several. At one point, Garrity refers to himself, McVries, Barker, Abraham, and Parker as the musketeers looking out for each other on the walk. Yet Abraham and Parker are extremely minor characters. Barker is also fairly bland and uninteresting. It's the same problem King exhibited in Rage. 
These minor characters all have their brief moment in the sun, but as written, there's just too many minor characters to ever keep straight. The only reason any stood out is they just seem to be the oldest young people ever. Some are married, some have kids, some, just 16 years of age, move out of state with girlfriends. Parents barely factor in except in the past. The walkers are poorly introduced and poorly developed, and they might as well have just worn bullseyes on their foreheads. Of all the people Garrity considers allies, only Peter McVries stood out and seemed important. McVries is the first person Garrity meets on the walk. Like Stebbins, McVries is a bit cryptic with his advice and quiet about his own past. But unlike Stebbins, there's an honest, generous nature to McVries. And that's because of all the walkers, McVries is the one who really doesn't want to win. Aside from Garrity, McVries is the character we learn the most about. He had worked at a textile mill, which reminded me of King's own life story, as well as the night shift tale Graveyard Shift. McVries' girlfriend worked in the same plant but in a much better job, and jealousy over money broke that relationship down fast. It ended badly, with his girlfriend slashing McVries' face with a letter opener. Depressed, McVries entered the walk to die over this broken love. Yet McVries' own story comes a bit late in the novel, and the way King establishes McVries in the story is by his constant help of Garrity. Both through advice and sometimes a literal hand, in several instances, McVries is the only thing that keeps Garrity from dying. Why does McVries do this? King's enigmatic on that. It's alluded to that McVries may be sexually attracted to Garrity, but it's an idea to which King doesn't commit. Yet of all the walkers, it's only Garrity, and to a lesser degree Barker, that McVries assists along the way. But McVries is stuck in my head. Simply because he didn't want to win, I actually thought he might. During my own long walk of reading this novel, which at times did feel like walking up a 2,000 foot ascent, it was the question of who would win that kept me eagerly turning the page. Were this book written differently, and each chapter jumped between different walkers or rotated among a select group of walkers, this would be very different. But as written, it's obvious that Garrity is going to see the end of the walk. If he didn't, it certainly would be an anticlimactic ending. Were Garrity number 63 to die and that's where the book stops? I'd be shocked as hell. But that won't happen. In prose, Garrity envisions himself as the star of the Ray Garrity story. And he is. If we're seeing everything from Garrity's perspective, then if Garrity dies, the book ends. It's as simple as that. But I didn't take this to mean Garrity would win, though. If betting, I'd have given Garrity a 90% chance. And if this book were written in King's name, I'd give Garrity 100% chance. But this is a Bachman book, written from the same mind that was full of rage, the previous novel. I know Bachman is a cold bastard who has no problem killing his characters. Plus, when asked time and again why he entered the walk, Garrity has no good answer. Compared to McVries, who does it out of sadness, or Abraham, who did it to try and make a good life for his children, or even Harkness, who plans to write a book telling the experience of going on the walk, I really thought the book could end with Garrity coming in second, maybe even intentionally losing so one of his fellow walkers, one with more of a reason to be in the walk, could cross that finish line. And of all the walkers, it seemed McVries could be the one for whom Garrity would sacrifice himself. It's something foreshadowed pretty early on. One third of the way through the novel, Stebbins recounts the end of a previous walk. King wrote, quote, I saw the end four years ago, Stebbins said. I was 13. It ended about 16 miles over the New Hampshire border. They had the National Guard out and 16 federal squads to augment the state police. They had to. The people were packed 60 deep on both sides of the road for 50 miles. 
Over 20 people were trampled to death before it was all over. It happened because people were trying to move with the walkers, trying to see the end of it. I had a front row seat. My dad got it for me. What does your dad do? Garrity asked. He's in the squads, and he had it figured just right. I didn't even have to move. The walk ended practically in front of me. What happened? Olsen asked softly. I could hear them coming before I could see them. We all could. It was one big sound wave getting closer and closer, and it was still an hour before they got close enough to see. They weren't looking at the crowd, either of the two that were left. It was like they didn't even know the crowd was there. What they were looking at was the road. They were hobbling along, both of them, like they had been crucified and then taken down and made to walk with the nails still through their feet. They were all listening to Stemmons now. A horrified silence had fallen like a rubber sheet. The crowd was yelling at them, almost as if they could still hear. Some were yelling one guy's name, and some were yelling the other guy's, but the only thing that really came through was this go, go, go chant. I was getting shoved around like a beanbag. The guy next to me either pissed himself or jacked off in his pants, you couldn't tell which. They walked right past me. One of them was a big blonde with his shirt open. One of his shoe soles had come unglued or unstitched or whatever and it was flapping. The other guy wasn't even wearing shoes anymore. He was in his stocking feet. His socks ended at his ankles. The rest of them, why, he'd just walked them away, hadn't he? His feet were purple. You could see the broken blood vessels in his feet. I don't think he really felt it anymore. Maybe they were able to do something with his feet later. I don't know. Maybe they were. Stop. For God's sake, stop it. It was McVreeze. He sounded dazed and sick. You wanted to know, Stebbins said, almost genially. Didn't you say that? No answer. The half-track whined and clattered and sputtered along the shoulder, and somewhere farther up, someone drew a warning. It was the big blonde that lost. I saw it all. They were just a little past me. He threw both of his arms up, like he was Superman. But instead of flying, he just fell flat on his face, and they gave him his ticket after 30 seconds because he was walking with three. They were both walking with three. Then the crowd started to cheer. They cheered and they cheered and then they could see that the kid that won was trying to say something, so they shut up. He had fallen on his knees, you know, like he was going to pray, only he was just crying. And then he crawled over to the other boy and put his face in that big blonde kid's shirt. And then he started to say whatever it was he had to say, but we couldn't hear it. He was talking into the dead kid's shirt. He was telling the dead kid. And then the soldiers rushed out and told him he'd won the prize and asked him how he wanted to start. What did he say? Garrity asked. It seemed to him that with the question, he had laid his whole life on the lines. He didn't say anything to them. Not then, Stebbin said. He was talking to the dead kid. He was telling the dead kid something, but we couldn't hear it. End quote. I really thought that story, told by Stebbins, the seeming know-it-all, foreshadowed the end of the novel. It seemed that the last two walkers on such a journey together had bonded, and the winner could take no joy for his brother had fallen dead. Again, it's an ending that would fit any war tale of a man broken by the death of his squadmate, and I pictured the end of this novel wouldn't be a happy one. Be it Garrity dying for McVreeze or McVreeze dying for Garrity, I expected the climax to have a melancholy tone. This assumption was compounded by lines King wrote such as when McVreeze said, just go on dancing with me like this forever, Garrity, and I'll never tire. We'll scrape our shoe on the stars and hang upside down from the moon. End quote. Garrity helped others during the walk, so his death could be a heroic one. I mentioned Garrity didn't know why he was on the walk, so how could he have a more noble end than to sacrifice himself, to intentionally come in second, just to let someone else, 
someone with more reason to live, survive the game. And if Garrity did survive, what then? Would he ask for the return of his father who'd been squatted? But when the book does end, it didn't go quite how I expected. In fact, it feels like King just got tired of writing and decided, okay, let's wrap this up quickly. The Long Walk is broken into three sections. Part one is called Starting Out, and it's only 44 pages, ending shortly after the first ticket. Then part two is called Going Down the Road. It's the bulk of the book. The third part, The End, is called The Rabbit, and it's just 18 pages, less than half the length of part one, and in that, the final ten walkers are whittled down. Not that I'm complaining about King's perfunctory ending. By the time we reached 350 pages, I was ready for this long war allegory to end myself. I was furiously turning the page to see who would win, but I wasn't enjoying the read. Truthfully, this entire idea is so high concept it belongs as a novella. Given the time it was written and the style of the writing, I was just reminded so strongly of the Night Shift stories I reviewed last year, many of which were written around the same time as The Long Walk, especially the ending. I can't spoil the ending for you, constant listener, because King leaves the entire thing so damn enigmatic that it's open for almost any interpretation. After 363 pages of teasing us with who will win the contest, King gives us an ending that pretty much says, fuck you, no one wins, the end. When I closed the book, one quote from the novel just stuck with me. Quote, he found himself still with too many questions and not enough answers. The whole walk seemed nothing but one looming question mark. He told himself that a thing like this must have some deep meaning. Surely it was so. A thing like this must provide an answer to every question. It was just a matter of keeping your foot on the throttle. End quote. Yes, that quote, the entire book's ending. They again strengthen King's theme at the expense of what the author usually excels at delivering, an enjoyable read. Now, in On Writing, King says The Long Walk may be the best of the three novels he wrote before Carrie. I disagree. While it's amazing for a teenage, first-time novelist, I think even Rage was more enjoyable and had a more interesting leading man. Which isn't to say this book is terrible. First, that it was written by a late adolescent is astounding. I want to reiterate, there's no way to know what was written in 1966 and what may have been revised in the years since. There were obviously some revisions as the final novel references John Travolta, but there were times when King's prose was almost poetic. Passages such as, quote, 3.30 in the morning. To Ray Garrity, it seemed the longest minute of the longest night of his entire life. It was low tide, dead ebb, the time when the sea washes back, leaving slick mudflats covered with strangled weed, rusty beer cans, rotted prophylactics, broken bottles, smashed buoys, and green-mossed skeletons in tattered bathing trunks. It was dead ebb. End quote. Yet for each passage that is written so colorfully, there are many more passages discussing scenery to the point that I thought part of the novel felt like a bitter traveler's guide to small main towns. There are other touches of King in the writing. Most of the chapters start with a quote from a game show or a famous game show host, but the book itself starts with three other quotes, including one lyric from a Bob Dylan song. The use of lyrics to start chapters was a trademark King move that should have clued 1979 readers in on who they were really reading. And though this novel was published under the Bachman name, King has not entirely forsaken this book. Ray Garrity returns. Well, the name does. In King's novel Bag of Bones, Ray Garrity is a fictional character in Mike Noonan's novel My Childhood Friend. Of the four early works released under Richard Bachman's name, 
Per that Greenwood biography of Stephen King, The Long Walk was the only title which sold well enough to still be in print when King's identity was outed. But having reread this book now as an adult, I really understand why this novel wasn't published until King had already made a name for himself. King had submitted it to a first novel writing contest, and it wasn't even accepted. King later tried to sell the book to Doubleday, and again, they passed on the novel. But King felt this story was worthy of publication, and he kept pushing it. Yet, when he used his fame and his deal with the New American Library to sell The Long Walk, King was actually upset by the initial poor sales of this book. If you listen to my review of Rage, you know King partially created the pen name Richard Bachman to see if he could recreate his own success. He wanted to prove, maybe to himself, that a new book he wrote would sell as well under any name. Coming off the best-selling status of The Shining, Night Shift, and The Stand, that the long walk gathered dust in paperback bins sent King the message that his books sold because of who wrote them, not because of what he wrote. But that's also a fallacy. This book was written a full decade before The Stand and shows the work of an author with a tremendous but unrefined skill. I really look at this book and see two things. First, a horribly unfortunate war allegory that never should have been attempted, and a pioneer of the young adult adventure fiction category. And I do think that with the recent successes of stories like The Maze Runner and The Long Walk's closest sibling, The Hunger Games, King's novel could have a second life in film. It needs to be toned down, the weird sexual passages and the premature ejaculation scenes need to be dialed back, additionally, the gore is turned up to 11 on the page, and I think today's teens can handle PG-13 violence, but not this hard R-rated gore and teens stumbling forward holding their own intestines. But yes. With a few tweaks and a much better ending, King's book could be the next Hunger Games. And The Long Walk is slated to be made into a film. The rights have been optioned by director Frank Darabont, King's longtime friend who's adapted his stories The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, and The Mist. When The Mist came out in 2007, Darabont said he'd get to The Long Walk someday, and even teased it being very low budget, perhaps even found footage. But a lot's happened in movies in the eight years since The Mist was released, and I think with a big budget and slick production values, this could take one of King's lesser novels and make a really successful movie. Hell, the way Hollywood works today, they could even franchise it, I'm sure. But until this book is adapted, its current legacy is of importance primarily to King. I mentioned in my review of The Stand, King was chafing under his contract with Doubleday. Their unwillingness to negotiate on money, the way they had held his royalties, and their insistence that King cut down his novel The Stand pushed the author into hiring an agent. When his five-book deal with Doubleday was complete, King looked for a new publisher for his works written under his own name, and he went to a familiar place, the New American Library. King said of the New American Library, quote, It was through the Bachman books that I actually got to know people over there. Real people, end quote. Well, it was those real people who convinced King to sign a new deal with them. And all the while, they still continued to publish King's paperback Bachman books on the side. But the first book in this new hardcover deal was The Dead Zone. The book released just one month after The Long Walk, and it's the book I'll be reviewing on the next episode of Books and Nachos. And while I polish that review, please come to the Books and Nachos forums or drop me an email at show at booksandnachos.com and let me know what you think of The Long Walk. Are you more into King's war story than I am? And really, what the hell do you make of that ending? Is Garrity insane? Dead? Did he win? So many possibilities, and I'd like to hear your theories. I'll be back in just a few weeks with my review of The Dead Zone. 
Thank you for listening to this review. And until next time, please remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I can't! I can't! I can't! I can't! I can't! I can't! I can't!